Welcome to the aggressive life. You know, one of the things I say regularly is we're going to do something a little different today. Well, we're going to do something a little different today yet again. Actually, Dirt, if we ever did the exact same thing twice in a row, I'd probably say we're going to do something different today. You know, the aggressive life is about moving forward, taking advantage of opportunities, and going for it. When it's something you do all the time, it tends not to be aggressive. It tends to be something that you just know how to do really well, which is wonderful. Let's all do things we know how to do really well, and let's do them frequently. You'll probably make a lot of money that way. But the aggressive life is always about that that first step that you're unsure of. It's virgin territory for you. It's it's awkward. It uh, it threatens pain. And so the reason I keep saying, well, it's something different we're going to do is because by giving us a wide menagerie of guests and topics, we can start to see how to get our way into going for it, being aggressive, pushing things, starting things. The problem is sometimes we've got to do that aggressively with something we just don't want to do. We actually get blindsided. Something comes out of nowhere and we're just not trying to push our life forward. We've got to actually recover in life because life has just thrown us a curveball. It's thrown us a joker that's hit us straight in the forehead. And then we got to make aggressive moves that we really don't want to do because it's surrounded circumstances that we really don't want at all. Our guest today is an expert in this field. His name is Mark Roser. It is a book that he wrote that has gotten us connected with one another. It's called Blindsided. Welcome to the Aggressive Life, Mark Roser. Thank you, Brian. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about you, Mark. What uh, what's your background? What 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 brought you to be who you are today? Well, I'm a native Cincinnati and a West Sider. And I was a political science major at Xavier University on an ROTC scholarship in 1978. Yeah. Pre-law student, go in the Army, four years active, two reserve, come out, practice law, get into politics, and it just blew my world apart. You went from there, and you became a missionary, right? Yes, I uh, I was invited by a missionary to Zimbabwe in 1980. The country just became independent then. Mm. And I went uh, in October of 1980. Everybody was leaving the country. At least there was a great exodus of white people. It had been Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia. So four months became eight months. My wife actually came. uh, She was my fiance. She came and married me in Zimbabwe in 1981. We spent 22 years there and uh, raised four children in Zimbabwe. So we've got another first here today. I think you're our first missionary that we've actually had. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. See, you wrote a book. We've had book writers on here, but man, Mark, you're the first person that's ever been a missionary on the aggressive life. That is an (laughs) aggressive move for us. You had another thing that was incredibly pivotal in your life and led to the writing of your book. Tell us tell us about that. Well, it's something I never would have chosen as you as you said in the introduction, I was blindsided. It was inconceivable. It was a Saturday, uh I got a phone call. Uh my son uh I knew had been in an in an accident. 
an officer came, knocked on the door, gave me a detective's name in Chicago. He had no information. I started pacing the floor in my lounge, and it just, it just came out of me. I said, oh, God, you're not taking my son, are you? And as I paced the floor, the phone rang in my office. I picked it up, and the officer said, are you sitting down? And I just, I was in free fall. He said, your son didn't make it to the hospital. I shattered. And uh, Ethan was our, our youngest, youngest of four, and during our years in Zimbabwe, him and another brother, uh, his older brother, uh, was born. We went with a boy and a girl. There were 14 years from the oldest to the youngest. So I had Ethan at home for like six years and traveled around the country. He was really good at soccer. And he was, he was special, very trouble-free young man, which made it harder. Uh, he was preparing for the ministry, uh, just a happy camper, uh, disciplined athlete, and just a bridge between kids at school. He was involved in young life. He'd do skits, make the kids laugh, a bridge between jocks and geeks, churchgoers, non-churchgoers. And I thought, this can't be. He was just so full of life. Mm-hmm. How, how did he die? What was the incident? Well, he was in an accident, and I had never— seen live a hammer throw event. It was a track and field event at Wheaton. As part of the soccer team, he was a volunteer. Uh, A steel ball, 16 pounds, is thrown in the air. See who can throw it the farthest. It was during the warm-ups. He was one of the measurers, and him and two other boys were retrieving them. One flew over another boy's head who had brought one back, retrieved one, missed that boy by about a foot hit my son on the side of the head, knocked him down, ricocheted off him, knocked another boy down. Of course, then they just told me on the phone, I mean, I, I, he's a hammer throw accident. And just all uh, the breath was out of uh, me. I simply said to the, to the detective, I'm sorry, I got to hang up. And I only got the details later of what happened, and I was just shattered. Gosh. What? Well, <sighs> That 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 that's just awful. Oh man, let me just let me stay on mechanics here just for a minute, just because it's so awkward, and we'll get into the the emotional trauma of this. Uh, first of all, I'm surprised that they even allow hammer throwing on college camps anymore because they've taken away everything that's dangerous. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually thankful that there's something left on college camps that are dangerous because we're de-dangerizing our entire world. I'm shocked. God bless America, I guess. I'm shocked they're still doing the hammer throw. It's basically an ancient torture device that used to have spikes in it, you know, whack people mm-hmm. and stuff like that. That's that that's crazy. Did they just not have their systems down in terms of when you can throw, when you can't throw, or did some strangers pick it up who didn't know protocol, just decided to heave it down the down the field and see what happened? What did I, I did you get the details on that? Well, I've learned more about the hammer throw, Brian, than I care to know. And it goes and can go up to two hundred and eighty feet in the air. I mean, we're talking three-quarters of a football field. Mm. And this was an errant throw, obviously, and uh, the warm-ups is the most dangerous time. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody thought it could land where these young men were. Uh, and I found out uh, what the NCAA requires is, isn't is safe at all. Mm. And um, 
But when I got the news, it was like I didn't want to know. Yeah. It was it was just I, I remember that first evening just getting on the floor in the in the lounge. I didn't sleep at all that night and I uh, just crying in the foyer, unable to sleep. I said, God, you've never hurt me like this before. Why hurt me like this? I mean, he was just the apple in my eye. My life was just bound up with the youngest and all my kids. I mean, Africa had a great influence on them. But Ethan had the full skill set to be a wonderful pastor. He was studying for the ministry, involved in young life. I thought, God, this young man would have served you for decades. And I knew the principle, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. It didn't make any sense to me. And so I just, uh, I was was in pain. You're just not supposed to outlive your kids. I mean, this is, this has so many levels of, wait, it can't be that way, right? Like the first one, you're just not supposed to outlive your kids. I don't care if you're 80. I don't care if you're 30. You're not supposed to outlive your kid. You got that one. Two, you're not supposed to get killed at a sporting event when you're not even competing, right? Three, it's not supposed to happen at a Christian school. Four, it's not supposed to happen with somebody who wasn't out drinking and wasn't out driving and whatever, whatever. He was, he was actually volunteering. Five, it's not supposed to happen to somebody who was going to go into ministry because, just you said, God would have wanted that, right? Six, it's not supposed to happen to somebody who's had a lot of pain in their life already with being a missionary. And if, if you have pain by being a missionary or something else, don't you get some little credits every once in a while to have some things go a little easier, mm-hmm. like not having a kid die? Uh, seven. I'm sure there's seven, but uh, you know you know what I'm saying. Yeah, he did a second shift as a volunteer for uh, another young man uh, who had something interrupt him. So he said, I'll fill in for you. Oh, gosh. And that just uh, exasperated uh, for uh, me, Brian, the whole, why, God? Uh, Not as a, as a uh, rhetorical question. But as a real question as to why you allow this, there's got to be some kind of redemptive purpose in this. I knew enough about the story that I'm in. Uh, it is a story of loss. I understand that. I, I, but God redeems our losses. But at that point, it was incomprehensible. How are you going to bring anything good out of this? Ugh. It seemed the end of my life. I mean, just getting one through one day was like, oh, God. You know, I, just, I didn't want to live. How long were you in, in that stage? Um, I was in that state for months. And what I did is I began to write blindsided. Just uh, it was therapeutic for me. I mean, I'm trying to gather up this boy's life. I mean, his picture's on my desk. There he is, his eyes smiling, the light of life, and just known as a happy camper. And I'm like, this can't be it. I'm gathering up things he wrote, things his friends uh, remembered about him. Uh, and I'm like, he got to speak. It's got to be more. It was like trying to drain the ocean of pain for me. I'd do it the first five hours of every day, the first two years after he died. I wrote Blindsided. Did you have a standard income-earning job at that point? 
I was very fortunate as a missionary, a career missionary, if you will, partners that have stood with me through thick and thin. Whether I travel during COVID or not, they're going to support me. And uh, I've written four other books, so it was in me to write as well, but I never thought I'd write this. This has been the last thing I would want to write about. And I just began to write each day. Little did I know, and I wrote in first-person active tense. I started writing even before we buried him. I started trying to collect his life. I, um, I didn't know how God was going to answer or how this story was going to progress. And a year became two years. I look back, it's been five years. Hmm. Um, it was five years on Friday last week. And I think, God, you, you carried me. It wasn't like, Lord, where were you when this trouble came? So for five months, you said, this is five years later, for five months, you were in an, an emotional stupor, spending hours in the morning as a cathartic exercise, writing the book, writing down your thoughts, processes. Uh, what other stages was there from five months to five years? Like we know the stages of grief. Someone just told me they added to the stages of grief. They added another stage, which is what are the official ones? Uh, denial, denial, bargaining, anger, acceptance. Uh, acceptance. Yeah, you know, you keep you keep cycling and through this. You kind of rewrite or rethink. You reprocess. Right. And you come to a place of comfort or peace. Well, for me. The the writing stage, I thought, you know, it, it was painful. It's like they say, you know, do you talk to somebody who has a loss like this? Well, there's only one thing harder than talking about it, and that's not talking about it. And I, I thought, at the end of a year, I'm finished. I just kept trying to get to that year marker and writing. And then a year became two years. And God began, Brian, to comfort us in the most profound ways and actually answer my why question, which is a point of difference in Blindsided. When I was first looking at books out there, I wanted to hear from somebody who was in ministry, who was Bible literate, who had lost a child. I searched far and wide for such a book. And as I found some, but the why question seems to be a no-goer for a lot of people, as far as there being answers. Uh, they would talk about their journey of grief and how God comforted them, but really, there's no answers to that. And there was one man who, who, who came up with an answer, but I couldn't go there with him once he presented that God really couldn't do anything about it. I mean, he'd like to have prevented it, but it's the nature of the world we live in. And for me, I had written a book on God's sovereignty in Zimbabwe during our many years of crisis there when Christians were praying, all-night prayer meeting, pastor widen God answering, is God really in control? Because it looks like man's defining everything, and it's not working out. And so even though I had a doctorate at that time in biblical studies, it drove me into a search. Who's really in control? Is God really in control? So when that man presented, well— you know, it's, it's it's outside God's control. You're not going to tell us who that man was? Well, um, I might know him. I'm just curious. <laughs> he, I think we all know him. Oh, we do? 
it's it is a position. There was a rabbi who wrote a book, as you as you may have heard. Why do good thing bad happen, things yeah. happen to good people? Right. It's the story of Job, right? right? And and you know, and then some there's Christians who well, you know, maybe you missed it somehow. And I probably land over there those early days. It was like, could have I prevented yeah. this? If I prayed more, if I had fasted, or had, did I open the door to this? Did, did Ethan do something? You know, but I know God's sovereign. I mean, a bird doesn't fall from the sky. Jesus, before Pilate, had a good confession. He said, you have no power over me unless it was given to you from heaven. Yeah. So, so I, I'm a believer that God is in control, but that also, Brian, compounded my question. Yeah, this is this is really the uh, the double edged sword of of religion, is that it does give us hope and comfort. When I say it, okay, I, yes, a person gives me hope and comfort. Comfort. His name is Jesus. But I'm saying when I say religion, I'm saying a structure, a cohesive structure that helps me make sense of the world. It 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 does do that. But then when something goes wrong, if I'm really needing that cohesive structure, then it falls apart. As a Christian, I do believe God is in control. I saw a lot of tragedy in Zimbabwe, but it never came to my house. I mean, the AIDS pandemic, we buried people. I mean, I remember a couple marrying and each of their young children dying, burying their children. I remember being at the funeral and then the wife died and he died. And that study on God's sovereignty obviously led to sharing in the church and in the churches there, and even the newspaper published uh, condensed versions of chapters on God's sovereignty because we're trying to make sense yeah. of what we're going through. And as Christians, we believe nothing can touch my life unless God permits it, right? Right. You're asking me that? <laughs> I am. Where do you uh, land up on this? Because I, oh, maybe man. you co-authored you're, the book that I wrote. You're going to get people pissed off with me, Mark. <laughs> you're going to get – I um, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. But let's go down this rabbit hole. This is good. Uh, a lot of our a lot of our believer or uh, our listeners aren't, aren't even all that familiar with the term sovereignty. So I'll describe it or define it the way I th I think it is, and okay. then we can interact on that. Some people believe that sovereignty means that God chooses who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. He actually chooses that. That's that's what that's what sovereignty is for them as far as that goes. Yeah, no, we would we wouldn't go there. Yeah, other people. Well, okay, there you wouldn't go there. Wouldn't no, you? absolutely not. Man has a choice. Uh, it's interesting. So that's the one part of what sovereignty I'm probably most comfortable with. Yeah, that men have <laughs> a choice. Yeah. No, no, that, that that God predestines people to heaven, but that's another that's another topic here. Okay, um, the other, I'm, I say I might be the most okay with that one. I'm not uh -huh. right now declaring myself as a Calvinist. That's those okay. who who say God predestines people to heaven. So, I'm, some days I'm a Calvinist, some days I'm not. You know, what did the? Uh, well, bring it down to where we live as Christians. Yeah. Things I experience, things that aren't nice, there's suffering, right. there's pain. The biggest stumbling block for many people out there is how can an all-good, all-powerful God, all-loving, allow suffering? Let's bring it to his sovereignty as it relates to suffering. 
when I wrote Blindside, it, I began to write it with that question in mind because Christians have terrible things happen to them the world over. And, and yes, is the devil involved? Is there sin? Is there free will? Yes, there is. But are these things under the control of God, his permissive will, what right. he'll allow? And then the question becomes, if he allows it, is there a redemptive purpose? That's where I land up on this question, that God, his son, I mean, you talk about something wicked and yeah. evil, yeah. Uh, crucify, put to death. I mean, and yet out of it comes the greatest good the world's ever seen, our salvation, yeah. if we believe and trust him. So Romans 8, 28, I'm, yeah. It's my life verse God even causes before this all happens. all things to work together for good for those who love him and call according to his purpose. God causes all things. That's not a sovereign some things, verse, not every. It? it is. It is. But my hedging on sovereignty when I talk with people about it is what most people who I talk to believe about that is God is aware of and approving of Every action before it happens, and so no, therefore he's in. So no, they don't understand yeah, foreknowledge. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. So I'm, that's, I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm, I'm not ready to go there. No, so, you don't need to go there. No. So uh, sovereignty then was a comfort to you in the midst of losing. It was a comfort, but it was also a prod to watch your reason for not causing it, but permitting it allowing it. And I have a template in Scripture, and I begin to see I'm part of a much bigger story, right? His story is a story of redemption. And I read of Abraham. I mean, I find out the guy's childless before he has a child. I find out sometimes you go down before you go up, right? There's, we talk about no no gain without pain. We talk about, you know, crosses before crowns and thorns before thrones and death before resurrection. So I believe these things, and I understand I'm part of this story, but I lost sight of the plot. Mark, I mean, you wrote on his sovereignty. You wrote a book on the devil. You wrote about your mission experience. You ministered to people. You're praying to be fruitful and even more fruitful. And, Brian, this has opened up doors to minister to people more deeply than I ever have, to comfort them with the comfort I've received, which I believe all ministry comes out of. So now I'm finding I'm in this story much more dramatically than I would have chosen or cared. And I understand things about God I never understood before. He didn't spare his only son. He knows what it feels like to have his son delivered up. I mean, I used to get it intellectually, rationally. There's only one way. It's Jesus, right? But now I get it emotionally. I understand the father and son had something going from all eternity. And in time, he brings him and is prepared to offer him up for me yeah, but that's to the cross. I mean— <laughs> Come on. And, 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 and am I going to participate in that with him? Am I going to be a sharer in that suffering? Or am I going to say, no, Jesus suffered for me, so I don't have to suffer? If you were to tell me, Brian, you're going to lose your son, Jake, uh, and I could have one or two options to lose him, one, a random thing that I didn't see any point to, or two, intentionally throw him across the tracks or train and save somebody else's life— Oh, throw him across the crowd. I mean, it would, it would be awful. It would be suck. But like an intentional purpose to save their lives, there is. But like, gosh, random 
thing with the hammer going through the air, hitting you when you're volunteering at a Christian school, as a guy who's going to ministry, as a that. I'm, I'm so, trying to empathize with so you. So was That's the devil involved? You, you bet. Yes. Was the devil involved in Jesus' death? For sure. Judas Iscariot. Yeah. It's the power of darkness. Did God allow it? You bet. There was a redemptive reason. My son, as I started gathering his life up, I find he posts on Instagram days before this. He's in Chicago downtown. They've been out in the park sharing with people part of an evangelism class. This was volunteer. On the way back, he stops at St. Peter's. It's the cover of the book, Blindsided. You see the back of a young man. It's my son facing the crucifix outside St. Peter's. He posts it on Instagram with these words, Jesus, my God, turns my darkness into light. As I started gathering his life, I started finding all these tangible written things, things I wrote him, things he wrote to God, a love letter, this tapestry of life-giving answers whereby I said, okay, God, I would not have chosen this, but I began to see and appreciate what you did in your son's suffering for me. I get it now emotionally why there's no other way. I get this. This is a love that is, I mean, it's eternal. Also brings you face-to-face with eternity when you bury your child. Yeah. You begin to think, hey, yeah, like you said, this is out of order. How'd he jump the line? This isn't natural. I'm jumping around here a little bit, but but I do believe God has redemptive answers. It's a point of difference in blindside. I don't believe in the don't ask, don't tell. I believe in a an aggressive life with God where we're seeking and walking with him. I I, I read the Bible. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. I get it. It was a messenger of Satan. God permitted it? Yeah. Did he pray for God to take it away three times? Did God say yes? Yeah. He said, I'm going to allow this. And it brought something into Paul's life, a grace, an experience with God, a power that he would not have known otherwise. So does God permit evil? Yes. But out of it, and this is where God is God and only God can do this, and he shows forth his power his eternity, he brings something redemptive out of it. So do you believe that you know why Mark was killed? I, th- I thought you said you did earlier on. Is that? Yes, that? absolutely. God allowed it and permitted it for a redemptive purpose. Do you know what the redemptive purpose is? Yeah. It's so that others, not only Ethan, but many others would hear the gospel and be ministered to at a deep level. It's a participation in Christ's death and resurrection. And the kicker in Ethan's life is I found a love letter he wrote to Jesus. And I thought, where did he get this? First, I thought it was was handwritten. I thought, did he get this online? It was Trinitarian. It was to each member of the Trinity. He says to Jesus, show me, describe for me where they drove the nails in your wrist so that I may never forget your love. And that was the refrain with each member of the Trinity, that I might not forget. He was at such a beautiful place, Brian, with Jesus. Best place anybody can be, I believe. And there was something I wrote to him I can share with you as well. But I believe, and it's even a pattern that I've seen, a beautiful, young Christian life in love with Jesus goes. And we think, what a waste. Or sometimes like the disciples with the alabaster box. What a waste. This could have been used. And God says, no, 
They did a beautiful thing, and I've immortalized it. I believe there's an immortalizing of some lives at a certain place with Jesus for eternity. And I've seen this pattern, and of course, I've come to know more pastors and people in ministry who've lost children. I haven't done research as far as the statistics go, but I would dare say they're probably higher. Something I've seen with Ethan, I gave my kids every Christmas when we came back to the United States in 2007 uh, a verse from the Bible. My wife, one morning after Ethan had died, is in the basement screaming, you got to come down and see this. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm in my study. She's got a, a studio downstairs. She comes running up. Where is it? She said, no, you got to come see this. And I go down there, and there in the his papers, which she was going through, was the scripture I had given him. I didn't even remember giving him it. She said, you gave that to him on Christmas. I said, so I had to get my hard drive out. It was from Revelation chapter 14. And it talks about the first fruits that are offered unto God without spot. And here's the kicker, though. Before she found this, and she's screaming down there, not not wanting to touch it, because a week before this, she said, you know what I felt God say to me about Ethan and his death? She's telling me this before we find it. I feel he's telling me that Ethan is part of his first fruits. Where is that in the Bible? I said, that's Revelation 14. We literally read those verses a week before. She finds it on a piece of paper. I'm dumbfounded at the time because I couldn't remember it. I go back over on my old hard drive, and there it is with the verses I gave to the other children. She says, when you gave that to him at the time, she remembered me giving it. I, I, I didn't. She said, I wonder, what does that mean? Why are you giving? I understood the blessing verses you gave to Jonathan, to Nathan, and to Alicia, but it didn't make any sense to me. So there's this tapestry, Brian. I share it in blindsided to answer your question. Absolutely. God had a redemptive reason. He permitted it and allowed it, just like his son's death. Yeah. He has a redemptive reason. Very few, very rarely are we ever going to know what the redemptive reason is, what you know, what it is. It, he redeems all things. He uses all things to bring him glory, but very, very rarely do we understand those moments of pain. I think that's why we're so prone when I find out someone died. My first question is what? Someone so-and-so died. My first question is, how'd they die? <laughs> why am I doing that? Because I'm trying to find a reason that they die. Well, how they die? On a motorcycle. And then the average person goes, oh, well, your motorcycle, this is an idiot. That's why you shouldn't do motorcycles. They're called donor cycles. <laughs> We're trying to find a reason we died. Find someone has cancer. What's the, what's the first ca- first question we ask? They have cancer. Next question is, you should know this, do they smoke? They smoke. We all want to know. We hear someone has cancer. Tell me they smoke, but I need to have a reason for the cancer because I need to feel secure that if I don't ride a motorcycle or I don't smoke a cigarette or I don't whatever, we're we're trying to find a way to minimize it for us. And you come into certain circumstances where it's there's sorry, you just can't find any reason. It's just uh, there, um, there is a reason. I'm sure may find it out in eternity, but in the moment. 
we got to live in our pain. And you lived in your pain in a significant way. Was there a thing, like from five months to five years or day one to five years, was it a, a gradual coming to the place where you are right now? I don't even know if you would call yourself whole. Would you call yourself whole right now? Well, you know, grief in those early days, I mean, it, it just comes like the waves of the ocean. Then later, what you do live with and you never get over is missing that person. That's like the tide that comes in every evening. You, you still long for them. I mean, he was a, he, a beautiful soul. He was so special to me. And you dream about him. You think about him. Uh, and, and so you never get over that. That's just love. You love that person. And, and somebody described grief as love weeping. So is it a gradual, just ongoing process from day one to five years where you are now? Or were there a couple moments that kind of catapulted you to get to a new place? Well, I mentioned a couple of the things, the discoveries, things I wrote, things Ethan wrote, uh, my wife wanting a book on heaven. I got one in my in my study, honey. Let me go get it. I go get it. I pull it out. Don't buy one online. I've, I've got Alcorn's book on heaven. I haven't read the whole thing. That Somebody gave it to me, right? Randy Alcorn, yep. In the middle of the book is a bookmarker of my son, Ethan. I think we got five from the school. One of them ended up in there. There he is smiling at age 10, 11 when we came back to America. And it says, every time I think of you, I smile. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, God. My wife sums it up this way, Brian. He says, God has had an ongoing conversation with us. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, we're talking tangible things. Friday, last Friday, fifth year anniversary, right? Uh, I didn't think I'd make it this long, right? He was our fourth child. So my fourth grandchild, a girl, is born on Friday this past week, mm-hmm. the fifth anniversary. When I talk about an ongoing conversation, God has comforted us in ways. Those are some of the you ask over the five years, and in Blindsided, I share how he brought me out by engaging me. And you're right. Some people are not going to get answers this side of heaven. Some people might not be able to handle the answers they get. Some people might not want answers, might not think there are answers. But the Bible is at least a generic template to give us answers. Yeah. Am I going to believe this? I want to believe what God's shown me. What he's shown me in Scripture, what I've experienced of him. I don't think there's any justifiable reason for someone to depart from their faith in Jesus if they've had a living experience with him and they're walking with him. I think we can have an indestructible hope. Well, people are—what do you think is happening with all the people who are deconstructing their faith and and leaving their faith? Why do you think that is? I— I question, well, maybe maybe they did have an intellectual, but I question the level of their experiential faith and walking with Jesus. You have God moments. Some are inexplicable and the complexities of these things to describe them to people. But even people who are in unbelief have had these kinds of experiences as well. They stick with you. Yeah. They change you. So let me ask you some questions that probably I've been asked many, many times, and many of our listeners might be wanting to ask, and uh, feel free to give a standard pat answer. 
a standard pat answer could be the right answer, and some people maybe haven't heard them, or feel free to blow them out on your own. Okay. Okay, so um, uh, is hardship a sign that God's punishing me? Absolutely not. Might be a sign you're doing something right. Certainly was the case of Job. <laughs> he wouldn't have gotten heaven's attention had he been doing wrong. Good. That's a big lie. We must never go there that God loves you less because you're going through stuff. Yeah. If, okay, that's another one. If God loves me, then why do I have so much pain? God loves you, and you have pain like his son did, and that pain is meant to have a redemptive purpose. It can draw you closer to him and transform you in ways. Peter, 18 times in his first letter, mentioned suffering. One thing he says, he that suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he might live the rest of his days, not according to the will of man, but for God. I mean, it, it takes away the, the trivial. Mm. It takes away the meaningless. It causes you to, to live in a different realm or level. If God's all-powerful, why doesn't he alleviate seemingly needless suffering? I, I, I don't believe there's any needless suffering. A person who's dying of starvation as a child in a foreign country? I, when, I, when, when we say, certainly, that could be addressed, but that drives home the point of our sinfulness and our lack of ability to share and use resources or whatever has been causing that, we have to understand the story. We're in worse in a story of great brokenness, of sin, of lostness, of tragedy, of paradise lost. I mean, we're, we got to understand the story we're a part of. So when we talk about suffering, sin, not personal necessarily, but definitely death came, the Scripture teaches, into the world through sin. So the country is living under perhaps maybe a sinful regime. It's making some poor choice that's trickling down to everybody else. So there's a Could reason. Be. Could be, yeah. There's a cause. I think what's so interesting hearing your, uh, your, your responses here, Mark, is if I were to give the same response people could be appropriately miffed or appropriately have a lot of, well, yeah, but what, what, yeah, but this, yeah, but, yeah, but what about, <laughs> because I don't have the same level of suffering that you've had, thankfully. Thankfully, I've not. I've not had to lose a child. I've not had to have, I've, it's just, so you though, you're, you're a graduate student in this, so I, I find when you speak and you say these things that some of which will be taught in a seminary class, it's not taught by an academician. You're field tested, man. You're in the, in the field. These, 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 I wouldn't this, have chosen to specialize. I know. In this, and I, know. I don't think it's the standard. I, I just, I just, I just want to say to our listeners: if you're tempted to have a little eyeball roll, or maybe you disagree with, I just want to say. Understand the messenger here. This is not some philosopher who's read some books. You've been in the shit, man, for five years. Awful stuff. Awful, awful. And you're here smiling. And so anything you say, I'm going to listen to. Fantastic. Zimbabwe was worse, Brian. What I saw people go through, and even here in America, I see what some people have had to go through and losing their children, taking their own lives. I mean, 
I don't consider myself to be a uh, – it hurts. I mean, I never knew I could hurt so bad. You love your kids in ways you don't even love your spouse or yourself. I mean, it's just it God put it in our heart to love our children in a special way. I never knew I could hurt this bad. When before I had kids, I didn't know I could <laughs> I could love someone like that. But what it does do, and I believe suffering does this, and I don't believe there's any suffering that's meaningless. Absolutely, there's so much that could be avoided. What happened my to my son could have been avoided. But there's a deep place in faith. And yes, if this is going to shipwreck my faith, I've got to really question, was I steering this ship? Was I really in the water? Did, or was I on the shallow ends of this? I can assume there's a lawsuit or is there something? There something? is a lawsuit. There's a complaint against the NCAA. Uh, it's uh, years into it. It's, still, oh, it's not over and done yet. Absolutely not. We're, um, uh, we're hoping— uh, they're going to change the rules and make it safer. There's simple things that could be done. We won't go into that, but I could list five things, simple, that could be done to prevent it. My son wouldn't have happened. Because when we talk about sovereignty, it doesn't mean that people aren't responsible, that people don't make choices. Yes. It just means God's bigger than all that, that he, he can determine how something eventually plays out if he allows it and permits it. You mentioned the hammer throw. I mean, there's a thousand things that could have could have happened to prevent that. Yeah, I believe God allowed it for a redemptive purpose. So the next time I go to an NCAA track and field event, if they make me wear a helmet, I have this incident to blame. You're not going to make all us wear helmets when we go to NCAA nah. sporting games. All right. If they just kept the volunteers off the field during the warm-ups, that uh, alone would do it. Interesting. There's no whistle. There's no horn. If we had the international cages, it restricts it by 30% more. It would have never gone that far afield. We didn't want the international, the more restrictive cage. Uh, there's other things. Officials could be certified. They are in football and in basketball, but this is an orphan sport, Brian. There's not, you know, it's a, it's a different deal. Anyway, I... You can see I have some feelings you about do. that. It's interesting. I'm seeing you're you're like uh, you're not philosopher guy. You're angry guy right now. So yeah, uh, you're you're still in the stage of grief. This uh, isn't this isn't nice and tidy put away. You're you're generally pissed off. I can see. Well, I had some anger, and um, yeah, I wasn't angry at God. I was hurt. But I tell you, I directed my anger toward uh, <laughs> some entities, not individuals. And you have to work through that because uh, although I know God allowed it and permitted it, I know he also holds people accountable. People do stupid stuff. And, but I, I have to deal with God too, right? I've got I've to trust God. I, 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 I realize, okay, God, I want to cooperate. I want to, if I need to do something to be part of the answer, the redeeming answer, if it's you know, and the hardest thing I ever did, and the most aggressive thing I ever did was right blindsided. And I look back, I thought, God, you got me through that. Man, you got me through that. And I, I'm like, okay, how can I cooperate? Ah, Brian's going to have me on his podcast. Maybe, maybe I can help somebody. 
Maybe this can be part of the redemptive answer. When I started advertising on Facebook, I had people who had such severe losses. Dreadful, horrific. They describe it to me. I was getting several a day deaths and children and trying to respond to them. And, and it's a real specific. Uh, I, I, I'm not a, be, a believer in generic answers. But I am a believer that there are God moments and that God is big enough to handle our lamenting, our anger, our crying, our questioning. He's big enough to deal with that. Yes. And it's really cool to see your anger there, Mark. And it just makes me respect you more because it's very clear that you're in the fight here. You don't have a tidy bow. Just put on this like, oh, that happened then, and I have all the spiritual answers, and now I've gone on my life. It's it's you know it's still it's still a daily decision to talk to God about this, to um, process your emotions with Him, or you know it's it's you could I could see you wrestling and leaning into Him. That that that's that's pretty cool and helpful for me to see. What's what I believe we need to do? My advice to anybody who's in pain and suffering and has lost, they need to be patient and, and, and wait. The story's not over yet. God is a redeemer, yeah. and I don't care how tragic or bad it is. God is so big and so great. He can redeem that loss. And and I, I don't know why. God doesn't— satisfy onlookers, their curiosity. But when you have a vested interest and you pour out your heart and lament to God, I say, wait, watch. Yeah. Watch. And, and, and participate if you can. I mean, even in our secular culture, a person has a loss, they start a foundation, don't they? They're looking for meaning. They're looking for redemption. They're looking something good to come out of this bad. I mean, uh, God built that in us. Yeah. Well, we've touched on a lot of stuff in your book. Uh, recommended highly. The book is called Blindsided. Mark, if someone wants to follow up with you, find your book, just give us a plug of how to how to reach out or how to find out more. Yeah, they can get the book at Amazon. They can get it at mcroser.com. That's my bookstore where Blindsided and four other books. Uh christianbooks.com, and then also uh, our mission, uh, and that helped me. Even in those early days, this was before COVID, after my son died, I, I continued to make mission trips. And uh, that's at uttermost.org, the, uh, the, the travels. Uttermost.org. Yes. Is there anything you want to talk about today that we didn't talk about or anything you want to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, I appreciate it, Brian, your interviewing and being able to interact with you around the subject. For some of our listeners, I'd just like to say that some of these things might be like you said. I mean, okay, might have some of it might have floated over a head or two. If, if you're going through something, and this is, this is my biggest, I get up at night, I start reading the scriptures. I start talking to God about how I'm feeling, how I'm hurting. And the scriptures, what a comfort. And, and getting that out, lamenting. I mean, there's a whole book by that name, Lamentation. I would go through the Psalms and pray the Psalms at night. 
and I can see David and the psalmist, man, they're letting God know how they feel. They're getting it out. And God, I believe he answers us. Yeah. 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 Praying the Psalms, just reading the Psalm, making it your prayer as you read it, or even as you read it, stop every verse and maybe add something to it. That's a, that's a good one. I've got a, uh, a message I'm getting ready for, uh, I don't know, dirt. Am I doing that in June? Uh, it's, it's out far enough in advance. I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about dashing infants' heads against rocks. That's One a, of the imprecatory yes, psalms. Yes, exactly. It's going to be, that's a whole cloud of, categorization of certain psalms that are about venting your anger to God and venting all of that stuff. And God's not <laughs> condoning or asking anybody to smash babies' heads against rocks. Not asking that at all. But what David's doing is he's modeling for us, I'm hurting here, and God, I know you can take my hurt. I know you can take my anger. I know you can hear it. So we got to go to God with that and say all the four-letter words to him and accuse him of all the things. He can take all that stuff because if we don't do it to him, we're going to do it to somebody else and we're going to think God has involved my pain and therefore he can't be, I can't be involved with him. I just got to leave the faith. And I think you've given us a really, um, some really good stuff here today, Mark. You've given us graduate level theology on some, on some levels, but you've given us uh, just a good model of Thank you. What it's like to... I appreciate that, Brian. Well done, brother. All right. That's it. I hope that you never have to apply anything from today in the aggressive (laughs) life. I normally say, let's go. This isn't about learning things. This is about thinking things. It's about doing things. Well, this is probably the one exception because I'm not sure exactly what you're going to do different. I guess maybe pray the Psalms. But here's some thoughts and here's some things that are actually going to maybe help you or somebody else just keep going on in life. God cares about you. He's not ignorant of your pain. Your pain hurts him, and he wants to lead into you. If you go through that process, we're going to call that aggressive. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.